Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to the show. Presley Neville O'Bannon was born in 1784 and has nothing to do with this episode other than the fact that there is a ship named after him, the USS O'Bannon. But Ben, what did he do? Why did they name a ship after him? Can we make the episode about him instead of the ship? I'm intrigued. <laughs> I, I am intrigued as well, Noel. Well, he did join the Marines in 1801, and as a first lieutenant, he commanded a detachment of Marines in the war with Tripoli, and during his operations with the U.S. Navy, he led a successful attack on Dern in April 27, 1805, and this gave the Marine Corps its immortal phrase, to the shores of Tripoli. Oh, yeah. So he's, you know, he's done stuff. That's some stirring stuff right there. <laughs> Enough to get a ship named after him, right? Did, did you say my name? Yeah, you're, I think so. You're Noel, right? I am. Okay. It's just a ritual thing. Yeah, we should have the ritual. We got it. And I'm Ben. Yes, you are. How do you feel about potatoes? <laughs> I feel, I feel great. I like them almost as much as I like super producer Casey Pegram, which, you know, sets the bar very high. Yeah. Potatoes are pretty amazing, right? Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah, right on. Throw them at some Japanese submariners. There we go. They have many uses, and today's episode is about one of those uses. We are exploring the story of the USS O'Bannon, which is a Fletcher-class destroyer, right, and some innovative warfare techniques they used. Uh, a story so bizarre that... I don't know about you, man. At first, I was skeptical. Did you know? it beg credulity? A bit. It did. Yeah, it did. It did. But then when you really get down to the nitty-gritty of it, you can kind of see how this absurd farce could play out in real time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so how should we set the scene? Let's talk first a little bit about the ship in question, the USS O'Bannon. You mentioned it was a Fletcher-class destroyer. Mm -hmm. What's a destroyer, Ben? It sounds scary. It's a great band. I said, yeah, it's a dude. <laughs> 
Dan Dan Bihar. <laughs> yes, I love I love Destroyer. Uh, but but you know the the, yeah. the ship. What's the ship? They're these very fast, long endurance ships that are meant to function as escorts in a fleet or a battle group. So I, I guess before World War II, you would say destroyers were pretty light vessels, and they weren't great at unattended ocean operations. They had to roll with a gang of other ships. So typically, there would be a number of destroyers together. But after World War II, guided missiles allowed destroyers to step up and take the roles that used to be filled by battleships and cruisers exclusively. That's right. And the destroyers would, like you said, kind of flock together in a squadron. And the squadron in question today is Desron 21. Yes. D-E-S-R-O-N, which stands short for Destroyer Squadron 21. There we go. Yeah. I like the way you're pronouncing that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that squadron consisted of the Fletcher, the Radford, the Jenkins, the Lavalette, the Nicholas, the O'Bannon, which was, uh, oh, the Nicholas was actually the flagship. The O'Bannon, the Chevalier, I think it was named after Maurice, <laughs> the, the French singer. Surely. Casey? Maurice Chevalier? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Casey okay. on the case. No, <laughs> Very <laughs> underwhelming Casey on the case. But by no fault of his, that was a silly question because it's not fair for me to put that much on Casey. You know what, though? We do hold him to a very high standard. Well, he is the standard. He is the bar, mm-hmm. which we strive for on this show every day. <laughs> Daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like how we're talking about assumptions because an assumption is going to play a big role in this story. Oh, and by the way, I should mention that yes, the USS O'Bannon was named after the famous hero of Derna, Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon, but it was actually the second ship to be named after him. So really? this, this guy is ship rich. Oh, and just to wrap up the squadron list, we've also got the Strong, the Taylor, the DeHaven, the Howorth, and the Hopewell. The Hopewell. That last one's pretty inspiring, right? So this is the group of, of ships known as Desron 21. On April 5th, 1943, they were returning from a night of shelling, attacking shore installations deep in the Solomon Islands in an area known as New Georgia. A lot of this story comes to us from a firsthand witness, a sailor named Ernest A. Hare. You can read his direct account on destroyerhistory.org. So there they are. They're on the way back from shelling these installations. And one destroyer, the O'Bannon, picked up a radar ping that turned out to be, dun-dun-dun, a huge Japanese submarine cruising on the surface. Yeah, and, and the, uh, the Japanese naval men, mm-hmm. submariners, I said that earlier, I don't know if that's accurate or not. I know it's a superhero, the Submariner. Yeah, Submariner works. Work? Okay, because they're, you know, they're on a submarine. They're like asleep on the deck. Seems super risky, right? Like, yeah. I don't even think of a submarine really having a deck. It's got this tower that you crawl up, but then I guess it's got a flat part that you can, like, hang out on. And that's what they were doing, and they were asleep. And one description I found of this uh, event on shipcomrade.com has a very specific description of these uh, sleeping sailors. It has them wearing dark shorts and dinky blue hats. So I'm guessing... Insubstantial little blue hats? Yeah, small or insignificant. Is that part of the the, na- the Japanese naval uniform? It must have been. I mean, navies have uniforms. But yeah, these were, dinky would mean tiny. So essentially you're saying that they have tiny hats. Yeah, bring that word back. <laughs> you're going to bring it back? Yeah. I don't think people use that word enough. I've, you know, Chuck likes to use hinky. 
Remember? That's different. He he goes through a hinky phase every so often. That's Chuck Bryant from Movie Crush and Stuff You Should Know. That just means things are a little dicey or there's like a, yeah. like a problem. It's like wonky. Uh-huh. It's not quite problematic. Right. <laughs> but it's getting there. It's get. It could well get there. As is this situation. Hey. Hey, huh? nice. Good Reeled job. it in. Yeah, yeah. So this submarine, Wonder of Wonders, is already surfaced and... It's not appearing to react to the presence of these destroyers, of the O'Bannon in particular. So they take the advantage. They say, well, if we have caught this enemy vessel unaware, we better make the best of it. They approach at a rapid speed and they're preparing to ram the sub to, you know, physically knock the tar out of it. Because I, I saw some videos, actually, of these destroyers at work doing that, mm-hmm. and that was a thing. I didn't, didn't really think about that, but they were like these, you know, um, seaborne battering rams, mm-hmm. and they could pick up speed pretty quickly and were made of pure steel and could withstand tons of damage mm-hmm. and inflict tons of damage on smaller vessels. Yeah, and think about it from a strategic standpoint, you're saving resources if you don't have to waste any kind of artillery. That's right. So, And at close range, mm-hmm. that's probably a more effective uh, way of dealing with it anyway, especially if uh, you're pretty sure that the lookouts of said target are asleep at the wheel or the periscope, as it were, or mm-hmm. in this case, on the deck of the submarine. Right. So... The captain of the O'Bannon is trying to identify what sort of sub this is. And then at the last minute, they said, wait, we shouldn't ram this thing because we might blow ourselves up if this sub is, for instance, the kind of sub that lays mines Mm -hmm. in the water. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I said in the water. It's not like they're just laying mines in Poughkeepsie. You don't know. Maybe. That, that's a very weirdly specific type of sub. But so they, they didn't want to blow themselves up. And they decided that they're not going to ram them. So at the last minute, they swing to avoid collision, and they're really close to the submarine. I imagine that probably uh, caused the Japanese submariners to awake with a start. <laughs> right. Wouldn't you think? Because as you said, they were on board the sub, the surface of the sub, right? Yeah. Asleep. So they are close enough now because of their last-minute decision not to ram the submarine. They are close enough now that they can actually see the Japanese sailors on the deck. And, you know, while that might sound weird for them to be just sleeping out in the open on deck, we have to remember how claustrophobic a submarine environment could be. You're going to do whatever you can probably to get some fresh air. A friend of mine who was talking about this story says, I bet submarines smell like farts all the time. Oh, man, have you heard of hot racking? No. Okay, so this is just a side note. Space is at a premium, and so I, I believe it's called hot racking. Different uh, different individuals will share the same bunk just based on their schedule. So you could have like three people sleeping in the same bunk depending on their shift. So you get up, you go to work, someone else lays down in the bunk, they get up, they go to work. At the same time, you're walking back and you sleep where they slept. What does this have to do with farts? I'm just saying it's an unhygienic situation. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Agreed. I don't want a hot bunk, hot rack with anybody. Well, it's just, you said hot bunk, and I immediately thought of hot box. Oh, which no. Which is no. where you fart and pull the covers up. Wow. This has really gone <laughs> off the hot rails, hasn't it, so, my man? So here we go. The, it's understandable that these guys want to get some fresh air, but the ship is now awkwardly, very awkwardly close 
to this submarine and they have this Larry David Seinfeld-esque moment, that level of awkwardness, because their ship was way too close for them to fire guns on the sub. And since no one on deck carried a gun either, there was not a shot at all from the U.S. side. See what I'm saying? They were too close for the trajectory of their guns to work. Those are meant to be like longer range weapons or at least medium range. You got to be able to get a bead on them and (laughs) get a little arc, right? Because these are shells. These aren't just like high-powered machine guns you can shoot directly. You got to kind of lob these things. Yeah, yeah. Oddly enough, there was a, a similar situation on the Japanese sub because none of the people on the deck there had handguns. There was one gun that could have worked, though, right? At least on the sub? Yeah, it was like a three-inch deck gun. What does that mean? Three-inch, like, caliber? What are we talking about here? I think it means primarily that the gun fires a projectile that's three inches long. Okay, so that would be much more of a machine gun type situation, right? Right, much more powerful than a handgun. And, but also much more able to fire at close range uh, and hit a target. True. So these Japanese uh, sailors are scrambling to get to this gun because they, you know, this giant ship is just right up on them. Can you imagine how, how terrifying that must feel? Oh, yeah, on both sides. Well, on both sides, but especially on the dudes who are just naked up there on top of this little raft thing. I mean, not that a submarine's small, but in comparison sure. to the size of the oh, destroyer, yeah. it would have been like, you know, being out in the ocean and like coming upon a, a whale <laughs> that wanted to kill you. <laughs> Right. And then on the O'Bannon side, on the U.S. side, can you imagine the escalating panic they see when they realize that they can't fire anything and they're watching, they're literally watching the folks on the submarine wake up, see what's going on, and start running toward that deck gun. Mm -hmm. And they have to think fast. They do have to think fast because you may have mentioned this before, Ben. I apologize if I missed it. But the Americans didn't have handguns either. Right. Um, on them for whatever reason. Well, I guess I guess that's not – I guess naval officers don't really carry handguns. Well, the thing I th- think that's important here is on a destroyer, you're not really building it with the assumption that you will get boarded or the individuals will be in close hand-to-hand combat. You yeah. know what I mean? And just the official word um, is that no, Navy officers do not carry handguns. Mm-hmm. They're trained in weaponry, mm-hmm. but that is not part of their kit. That is not part of their uniform. Y- their usual equipment, mm-hmm. right? So they have to they have to think fast, looking around, who has a gun? No one has a gun. Wait, the sub has a deck gun, and if they if these guys reach it, then we are in for a terrible, terrible time. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes. You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. 
for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville's. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So the guys on the USS O'Bannon look around and they see these storage bins. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, it's not even clear from, from reading up on this if they really even in the moment knew quite what was in there. Right. I think they were just kind of like just frantically grabbing at anything, <laughs> scrabbling for purchase. Yeah. And, uh, and it turns out that these bins were full of potatoes. Yeah, and they, so they, they started throwing these at the guys on the submarine and the Japanese sailors panicked because they thought the potatoes were hand grenades. Because that's the kind of thing you would logically throw at someone in a war. Well, these Japanese uh, folks must have thought that these American sailors had their act together much more than they actually did. They gave them a little credit, thinking, oh, surely they're lobbing <laughs> hand grenades at us. And it was dark, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but y- you'd think when they gripped it, they would sense the, 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 the feel of the potato and, and not have those you know, traditional hand grenade rivets that you'd, you'd be used to feeling, probably, if I, you were a soldier. Yeah, but I think the adrenaline, the adrenaline made probably— it feel- yeah, yeah, it probably triggers a fight-or-flight thing. That's right. The mind took over and uh, made those potatoes into hand grenades in the minds of the Japanese. And So they started lobbing them back. Yeah, yeah, they didn't run away. That's the best part. This is essentially a food fight at this point because the Japanese sailors think that these are hand grenades, and they try to get rid of them by picking them up, catching them, throwing them back at the O'Bannon, and then— as this ensued, just lobbing potatoes back and forth at each other, uh, the crew of the O'Bannon was able to, as Ernest Hare says, put a little distance between our ship and the sub, essentially to get far enough away to be out of range of that deck gun. And 
it's important to note, at the same time they're getting out of range of the submarine's deck gun, they're getting far enough away for their own guns to come into play. Mm-hmm. Specifically, those guns are five dual-purpose, five-inch, 38-caliber guns on single mounts. And those, those five guns are not the entirety of the armament. Uh, there were also torpedoes aboard, and they also had anti-aircraft armament. But those five guns themselves, the five-inch, 38-caliber ones, that's game over. Yeah, for sure. And it was game over because they, they lobbed off a good shot, and they caught the uh, Japanese sub right in the, the little tower thing. What's it called? What's the conning tower. The conning tower, which is where they you climb out of it to get to the top, to get to the deck. And I believe that's also where the periscope is located. I believe so. Like run up into that, yeah. and that's the little piece that you see if that's always you know kind of floating over the top when mm-hmm. the when the submarine's not fully fully underwater but mostly submerged, uh, because yeah, it was trying to to go for a dive. It was trying to get out of there, mm-hmm. and they must have caught it right in the nick of time because they you know hit hit that tower and it disabled the sub enough that it wasn't able to escape, and then the um, the O'Bannon uh, kind of maneuvered on top of it and hit it with a depth charge. Yeah, which is. Like what? What? How does that work? Just picture, uh, picture like a a slow orb or bomb dropping down. Yeah. So a bop on the head. Oh my gosh! Sounds... Which is I, you know, which I'm not saying to diminish the tragedy of human life, but all indications we could find show us that the sub did indeed sink due to that depth charge and the shot at the conning tower. Human life is indeed quite a tragedy, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to diminish that. And off the O'Bannon went. But we have, we have two other things that we thought were very interesting about this story. Uh, the Association of Potato Growers of Maine heard about this potato battle, and they loved the idea. Yeah, they did. They loved it so much. They presented the crew of the uh, O'Bannon with a plaque with some problematic language. Right, yeah, a tribute to the officers and men of the USS O'Bannon for their ingenuity in using our now proud potato to sink a, and again, this is a quote, this is an offensive phrase, to sink a submarine in the spring of 1943, presented by potato growers of the state of Maine on June 14th, 1945. One thing that's weird about this is they have sink in quotation marks. Yeah, that seems like kind of a dig. Was it slang? I don't know. I don't know I'm not either. Sure. I have a question too, Ben. Yeah. Why is this, why is this considered the, a Maine incident, the Maine potato episode? And why were they in the waters of Maine? I, th- I thought they were like somewhere else. No, they're in this, by the Solomon Islands. I know, that's yeah. what I thought. So why would Maine have to do with anything? I guess because they grow potatoes? I, no, this, this, I, I mean, they literally called this event the Maine Potato Episode. I've seen it called that a bunch of times. Must have been Maine Potatoes then. The potatoes were supplied by Maine. It's so weird, dude. It's such a strange nomenclature. Like, the only mention of Maine, other than the fact that it's called the Maine Potato Incident mm-hmm. multiple places, is the fact that the O'Bannon itself was forged um, in Bath, Maine. Right, yeah, that's a good call. Back in March of 1941. So so now we don't know for sure, but we have two, I would say, pretty good guesses. It was made in Maine, or it was using potatoes from Maine. There's a Maine element here. Mm-hmm. Mainly. Mainly a Maine element. It's not the main part of the story, but no. Maine is an important But we got part. there. We, we got, got there. Here we are. I think this is the end. 
Um, well, no, no, there's a little bit more. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the ship and about destroyers? Just as a little supplementary wrap-up. Sure, man, because destroyers are fascinating ships, and the O'Bannon in particular has uh, way more war stories than just this one potato incident, right? That's right. And there's another great account from this guy, Ernest Hare, um, just about, like, being a cadet or a, what do you call it, like a rookie first-year sailor on the O'Bannon and, you know, going into the Battle of Guadalcanal. And it's, it's an Angel Fire website, which I thought I thought went the way of GeoCities. Still around, huh? Yeah. That's crazy. You ever try to find your old MySpace profile, Ben? Not a door I would care to open. Still around. I'll have to look it up and report back. But no, in this account, he talks about his early days on Ooh. the brand new, shiny new destroyer, the O'Bannon, fresh from the ironworks, he says, of Bath, Maine. Also, the crew was as new as the ship, right? 70% of them were just raw recruits. As Bunch he says. of green boys. <laughs> right. The stars in their eyes. Right, but they're training, they're mm-hmm. learning how to, you know, put on gas masks and, and you know, nurse severed limbs and all of this stuff. And he says a really interesting thing. We're talking about the gas mask. He says, surely we are not going to be so unlucky as to need one of these things. Everyone knows you can get hurt out here and maybe even killed. But these are things that happen to the other guy, not you. Nevertheless, a laugh or a smile became a rare item. Mm-hmm. And then he refers to people over 30 as being old timers, which makes me feel like a grandpapa. Ah, right. But again, you know, a lot of these recruits are people who are straight out of high school, too, you know, in many ways, still kids. That's right. But in this account, he does take some solace in the fact that he's told, his whole crew is told mm-hmm. that this ship is damn near impenetrable and unsinkable and is loaded with all kinds of bells and whistles. What kind of bells and whistles are we talking about? We've mentioned a few, but what else we got? Right. Uh, so we mentioned some of the guns, both the anti-aircraft and the surface guns, also torpedoes. And, you know, we mentioned depth charges earlier, but he points out that submarines actually run from this destroyer. Yeah, except when they're, you know, asleep. Right, right, right. Which, again, you have to, we have to empathize with the utter terror the uh, Japanese sailors must have felt with this thing rolling up on them, as you said, like an angry whale. But let's get more specific. We mentioned those five-inch guns. They also had 10 40-millimeter guns for anti-aircraft, seven 20-millimeter anti-aircraft guns, uh, 10 torpedo tubes, six depth charge projectors, and two depth charge tracks. So this thing is pretty much ready to tangle. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, like I said, the crew of this maiden voyage, you know, took some comfort in that fact. But um, they were first engaged in a battle called the Battle of Guadalcanal, which was fought in the Pacific Theater of WW2 around the island of Guadalcanal. And it was the first big attack by the Allies against the Empire of Japan. And this was the moment when Hare and his uh, sailor buddies kind of got a taste of what war was really like. We always hear about this idea of the romanticization of war by these young bucks that come in thinking they're going to find glory, Mm -hmm. and instead they find, you know, severed limbs and destruction, flotsam and jetsam floating in the water. It reminds me of a poem from... World War One by a guy named Wilfred Owen called Dolce et Decorum Est. I won't recite the whole thing because it's a little bit long, but it, uh, I think, encapsulates this, I don't know, this this universal idealism and then disillusionment and often death that's involved with war. The first engagement of the naval battle of Guadalcanal 
was relatively short in terms of time, but there was massive damage. Uh, two American light cruisers and four destroyers went down. Two Japanese destroyers were sunk. It was, it was terrible. War is hell. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. The big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And so I think we've established that the O'Bannon had a number of other adventures uh, that were not potato related however i gotta say even though war is a terrible terrible thing i love the image of these grown people having this sudden food fight i was about to say it's a food fight yeah. you know among grown men i love it yeah i know we need more food fights in general although it did it did it did end in the the japanese men being you know brutally exploded by a depth charge so that is true that's not super cool no but again 
food fights. Let us know if you ever want to get involved in a food fight. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would totally be in on Are one. You really? That's no. No way. You no, wouldn't do uh, it? Hell, no, no way. Do you hate fun? I don't hate No, it doesn't sound like fun to me. It sounds like <laughs> a mess. I don't even like it when it happens in movies. It grosses me out. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it depends on the type of food for me. Like a potato is not a messy thing. And actually, a potato could hurt you Absolutely. if you threw it hard enough. You ever shot a potato gun? Mm-hmm. I built one. Did you ever make napalm? No. No. Just potato guns. And uh, let us know about your experience with, where do we go here? Potatoes, life in the Navy, building potato guns. Anarchist cookbook recipes, Mm -hmm. what have you. And speaking of you, enough about us. What do you say to some listener mail? I say, huzzah. Our first listener mail comes from Michelle K. Uh, subject is weird people who built with beer bottles. Hello. I had gotten a little behind and finally listened to the weird people who built weird things episode on the five-hour drive to visit my parents in the small California coastal town of Cambria, which is just below Hearst Castle. Uh, it's about halfway between San Francisco. That's the famous Hearst Castle of William Randolph Hearst, right. uh, famously depicted, fictionalized in Citizen Kane. Um, but it is literally, as it sounds, a castle. It's about halfway between San Francisco and Los Angeles. And that episode, you asked about other weird buildings, and I had one immediately. One of my favorite places in Cambria history is a truly bizarre home built by hand called Nitwit Ridge, which I love. Uh, It was built by a man named Art Beale over the course of 50 years, mostly out of trash that he dragged down the coast of Hearst Castle, where he worked, and native materials such as abalone shells. Tying in with another episode, there are beer cans built into the structure as well. It's about our Heineken bottle bricks episode. Uh, He lived there for most of his life. It's uninhabitable at this point, but still sound enough for tours. It's a time capsule inside because when he left, he left everything behind. So there are old clothes, food cans, etc. And then um, she attached a couple of photos here. And it looks like a crazy Peter Pan treehouse. It's awesome. Thank you so much for the podcast. I've enjoyed every episode so far and look forward to many more. Uh, Thanks for the company on my long drive. That's awesome. Thank you so much for writing to us, Michelle. Also, thanks to everyone who responded and sent us weird buildings from your neck of the global woods. You know, please keep sending them as well. And let's do one more. May M writes to us and says, Hi there, Ben and Noel. I'm a big fan of the show. I love the segment, Casey on the Case. Huh, Casey? Right on. I just finished listening to The States That Never Were, says May, and during the episode, I was pondering. Note, I am from Massachusetts, where I feel the attitude on the South can often be derogatory or patronizing, but I try my best to be inclusive of all folks. It's cool. We feel the same way about you. In Massachusetts. I think Massachusetts is great. No, it's great. I'm joking. (laughs) Uh, So May continues, I can't help but notice the two of you do not speak in a Southern accent. I heard one of your fathers during extra credit and was delighted by his pride in his Southern heritage and accent. I was wondering if you two naturally have an accent and smooth it over because you're on the radio and it alienates others or if it's a thing you picked up from TV and other media. I don't mean to be rude. I'm just, and you're not being rude, May. This is a great letter. Uh, I'm just curious on the ridiculous history of why there is this divide and how our country speaks, which is quite diverse in reality, but in movies and TV, only if it is relevant is the Southern accent ever used. I'm late for work, have to get going. Should we show her our real voices, Ben? <laughs> All right, man. This is me. That's your real voice. This is me for the first time ever. <laughs> this is me, Noel Brown. This is how I sound. Bear my soul for you people. Mm. No more putting on airs for this podcast. Yeah, you can hear uh, Noel's German accent 
coming out there. <laughs> no, I'm obviously kidding. Uh, no, I don't know. It is funny, though. We don't uh, have any kind of Southern accent. Not you, very strong. Do you ever code switch, though, when you're around, like, your folks, or you go back home to, to uh, Tennessee and you see some family who have more of an accent? Do you ever kind of find yourself drifting into it a little bit? No, no. The only thing is sometimes vowels will come out strange, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I actually, I responded to this, and one of the points that we wanted to make is that here in the information age, a lot of people at least in the U.S., are going to speak with a more neutral Midwestern kind of accent because that's what's encouraged in television, on your local news station, for example. And I think we can all agree that diversity of accents is a really fantastic thing, and they could be more well-represented in the media. Also, this is great embarrassment. I cannot pronounce you all to save my life. You just did it. No, you know what I mean. The, uh, the contraction. Yeah. You can't say y'all? I just can't pull it off. What kind of Southerner are you? I don't know. I don't know, man. I quarrel with this. But. Well, uh, you, well, you got, I got quarrel with you now. Oh, yeah? Are My we dude, beefed up? We are beefed up. <laughs> well, our creative differences aside, the point that I think uh, the three of us wanted to make with accents is that regardless of how people may or may not judge you for the way you speak, uh, I would say embrace your accent. You know what I mean? It's part of what makes you, you. And also, accents are dynamic. So if you move somewhere where people pronounce things differently, such as um, Madonna moving to the UK or us moving to Australia, eventually some things are going to sink in. You're going to start, I mean, you're not automatically going to start yelling g'day at people, but... G'day? (laughs) But we tend to, we tend to at least uh, speak the way that people around us speak. It's true. So thank you so much to May and Michelle and everyone else who wrote in. This is the end of Listener Mail, but not our show. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're especially delighted uh, with our community page, Ridiculous Historians. That we are. We made some lifelong friends there at Ridiculous Historians. Uh, and you can be a part of that pool of humans as well by going to Facebook and signing up. All you got to do is tell the robot what our names are. Only one of them. Mm-hmm. And we get a kick out of the ways people spell my name mm-hmm. and the ways people spell your last name, Ben. It is a hoot. We also uh, we also have T-shirts now. We're legit. Yeah, with our names on them spelled correctly. <laughs> you can uh, you can find one of our favorite T-shirt designs uh, featuring our old pal slash nemesis, Jonathan Strickland, the quizster. Yeah, you just go to tpublic.com slash ridiculous history, and you can get that stuff slapped on a mug or a mouse pad or a backpack or a laptop sleeve, anything pretty much that you can think of. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can slap a logo on it there. And if you have ideas yourself for uh, designs, anything you hear in the show you think would be cool on a piece of merch, let us know. Write us at ridiculous at howstuffworks.com. I'd like to thank super producer Casey Pegram. I'd like to thank Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Mm-hmm. I'd like to thank our research associates, Christopher Hasiotis, Eves Jeffcoat, and most importantly, thank you for tuning in. Hey. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.